0: Amen. You may be seated. Good morning and welcome to New Springs. Uh, always a pleasure and a delight to, uh, to see you, to be able to worship with you. It's not something that you can do by yourself. You can't uh, truly worship Christ without uh, a body of believers, and so I get to do that uh, each and every Sunday, and I love it. Uh, my name is Gavin. I'm the pastor here at New Springs Church. Uh, if it is your first or second time here in particular, we'd love for you to fill out a Connect card, um, you'll be able to place those in the baskets when the offering plates come around, or you can put them in the boxes in the back. We'd love to hear from you, get to know you. We're not trying to harass you, but, you know, we probably will like you. And so we want to we wanna chat a little bit. Um, this we, And in particular, too, I'll, I'll say this. Those Connect cards, uh, our, our steady diet here at New Springs is to go through uh, books of the Bible. The only thing you're ever going to hear preached here is God's Word uh, and what he has to say. And given that, every now and then, uh, there are topics that are a little bit harder to deal with. Uh, and so we're not going to run from them. We're going to preach them. And if you have questions about that, uh, we're not the kind of place where we say, hey, you just receive it and, and go home. If you've got a question, write that out on the, on the Connect card. We'd love to get in contact with you and see if we can find answers for you um, to, to, to arrive at those answers. So uh, this week, we're going to be in Colossians again. Uh, we've been all summer. In our series, Preeminent, looking at Paul's words to the church in Colossae. Uh, And in this week particular, we're going to be looking at chapter 3, verse 18, through chapter 4, verse 6. So last week, we looked at the first 17 verses in Colossians. And in it, we saw that Jesus Christ has made us a new creation. So if I believe in Christ, I have faith in him, he's renewing this world into a new creation Which then means that my responsibility as a believer in Christ and follower of him is to put to death those things that are earthly in me and to put on, like a new set of clothes, put on the righteousness, the gentleness, the compassion, the love that represents me as a new creation. And so this week continues that theme. Uh, In particular, we're going to be looking at what Paul says about the new creation in our homes. And so... Colossians 3.18, we'll read it in a minute, turn there with me, uh, and we'll pray. Father, thank you for this morning in particular, and uh, for the wisdom that you give us on how to govern our homes here from Colossians. I pray that uh, we would make and honor and respect and love and acknowledge Jesus Christ as the master of our homes and not ourselves. I pray that you would help us to do that in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So you probably... Don't need me to tell you, but uh, over the last however many years, uh, the way America approaches families is drastically different than it used to be. Uh, Studies show that there's actually no longer one dominant family structure in the United States. So about 60 years ago, 73% of families in the United States were a husband and a wife in their first marriage with kids. Now in 2019 as you would as you'd probably guess families don't always look like that. So the number's more around 43% and so we've got drastically diverse family structures here in America. With the changing dynamics of the way families look, our philosophy toward family has also changed. And um, I think it's important to say some of those things are good. So there's some things that were practiced long ago in families that were not good and probably needed to be done away with, and we've made some improvements as we've progressed, Uh, but we've also added on things that maybe are not so helpful. And so this morning, we'll see that God really considers families to be important. As a matter of fact, when we look at the beginning, when God brought up Abraham and called him to go to a land that was foreign to him, and he blessed him and he made a promise to him and a covenant with him, it wasn't just with Abraham as an individual but to his entire family. He said, this covenant is with you and all who are in your household. Later on in the Old Testament, we see God present what's known as the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter six. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And it was a confession about God being the one God of Israel. And what was key is God instructed the Israelites, teach this to your kids. When you go in, when you come out, be teaching this to your family all the time that God has won. Family was important. And then as we progress further in the Old Testament, you get to the book of Judges. And if you've ever read the book of Judges, it's, just, it's depressing, right? People are doing evil stuff and bad things are happening to Israel. At the beginning, we get a hint as to why that's happening. It says that a generation rose up after Joshua, who was Moses' successor. A generation rose up who did not know the Lord. This was an indictment on the society. Families were being structured about, around something other than our God and his word. And so because they didn't know the Lord, they faced the consequences for that, and society deteriorated. And so this morning, my goal is not to uh, give a rah-rah about how we can make America better. It's really not our concern. Uh, but our concern is how is it that we can make Jesus Christ the Lord of our homes And what does that look like so that we can avoid that same problem of not knowing the Lord from generation to generation? So we're going to read uh, Colossians 3, beginning in verse 18, and we'll read all the way through to verse 6 of chapter 4. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So our first point is going to be uh, that a home led by the Lord is a place of love and leadership. What's most consistent about these verses that you see repeated over and over and over again is the Lord. Seven times we see Lord pop up in these verses. It's clearly a point of emphasis that Paul wants us to pay attention to. And every time Paul uses the word Lord, he's using it to show that this should be the motivation for which we obey Paul's commands or God's commands. Verse 18, as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 20, for this pleases the Lord. Verse 22, fearing the Lord. Verse 23, as for the Lord, not man, and on and on it goes. So we see the Lord is the central theme. Paul saying that the Lord Jesus Christ is master, Lord boss in charge of our homes as the new creation. And so serving Jesus Christ, our Lord, undergirds everything that we should be about in our family structures. So what we have here is a set of household codes. And in the ancient world, these were common. Uh, typically, a family would have them, and they were, they were constructed as a way to tell the head of the household how he is to uh, run his family. Uh, An example would be Aristotle from the 4th century B.C. He had household codes that gave instructions to husbands, to fathers, and to masters of slaves. And you see the same pattern here. These codes existed to kind of reaffirm the authority of the head of the household. Here's why that's important. Paul's taking that societal structure, household codes, and he's redeeming it for the way Jesus would have us approach the home. Tackles it completely differently where the emphasis in Paul's day is on the authority, the rule, the dominance of the man in the house as father, as husband, as master of the slaves. Paul, however, takes those household codes and goes to great lengths to demonstrate the equality of all people in the home, how we all possess dignity, how we all have worth, and how we all should be pursuing the Lord together. So the very first thing that we read is in verses 18 and 19. I'll read it again. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So the very first thing that Paul tackles is the marital structure and how it should look uh, in, a, in a Christian home. The very first thing that jumps out to us, because it's 2019 and we're in America and particularly we're in South Florida, the very first thing that we see is submit. Even though it's not in capital letters in your Bible, that's the way you read it. You looked at it and you go, whoa, submit, it's underlined, it's bold, and that's what you saw, and you're like, what is that about? Well, in Paul's day, in context, what actually would have jumped out to the readers is verse 19. Take a look at that again. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So I told you in context that household codes were common. All societies had them in the ancient world, especially in Paul's society. What those household codes did not have, there's no evidence in any of them, is a call for husbands to love their wives and not be harsh with them. This is new. That's a Christian idea that wasn't around in the ancient world. As a matter of fact, the ancient world would have called for wives to be uh, obedient to husbands as their masters. The husband was the authority in a very dominating sense. This isn't the idea at all here. See, in 2019, we often get accused of that. People outside of the church will say uh, that Christianity, the Bible, Paul, very misogynistic and against women. Reading it in context, you'll understand very quickly that that is absolutely foreign to the Bible. What Paul is doing is elevating and lifting up wives here in the home. The only, as a matter of fact, the only relationship in this list, so if you look at it, it's, there's pairings. There's husband and wives. There's parents and children there's masters and slaves, right? And in those, the last two relationships, so parents to children, the child is called to obey the parent. And in the last relationship of slaves to masters, the slave is called to obey the master. Well, what word do you notice is absent when he talks about husbands and wives? He doesn't use the word obey. He says submit, which means something entirely different. And so because Paul commands love and gentleness out of the husband that absolutely 100% rules out a male dominating figure in the home where everybody else just obeys what he says. that's not what Paul is talking about. instead, Paul presents submission as voluntary humility as equals. So there's a parallel text to this one in Ephesians uh, and Ephesians gives us a little bit more a little bit more depth to what Paul is talking about and in Ephesians, Uh, Paul says that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he goes through and he lists what being filled with the Holy Spirit looks like. And in verse 21 of Ephesians, he says being filled with the Holy Spirit means that we submit to one another. And in that context, he then calls for wives to a voluntary submission as equals in the house. That's very, very different from uh, a begrudging obedience. It's very, very different from a dominating man who commands everything. And so both husbands and wives are dignified bearers of the image of God in God's kingdom. I'll say that again. Both husbands and wives are dignified bearers of the image of God in God's kingdom. Paul's very, very clear about that. One is not superior to the other. So this question is probably still lingering in your mind. So why the call to submit? Why does he say wives submit and not say husbands submit? Well, in any, in, in any societal structure, leadership and accountability is necessary for the institution to flourish, right? If you, got, if you have a group of people gathered around a cause to do anything, someone has to emerge as the leader or nothing is going to get done. We just know that to be true. Someone also has to be held responsible for when things go bad, if it's not going correctly. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. The story begins in Genesis 2, where God gives Adam the command to not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. Eve is not given that command. Maybe she was there, it's directed to Adam. Chapter 3 begins, and the serpent goes and he tempts Eve. Those first six verses are just an interaction between Eve and the serpent. She listens, she gets the command of God wrong. I don't know if that's because. She was harboring bitterness in her heart, or maybe Adam didn't communicate the rules to her well. But it's very clear throughout the rest of the Bible who gets blamed for bringing sin into the world. It's Adam, right? He did not eat the fruit first. Eve did. Why is Adam to blame? He's the leader. He's responsible. He's held accountable. When you watch football in a couple weeks, football starting back, when your favorite team loses, who's getting the blame? The quarterback and the coach, right? There's 52 guys on that team. No one's calling out the backup defensive tackle, right? Maybe a talented guy, maybe athletic, probably a better football player overall than the quarterback, but the quarterback is designated the leader. And so we also know that a good leader is, uh, is someone who's the product of good counsel. Any good leader is going to take the opinions and the advice and the counsel of others and lead in that way. That's partly why the Bible describes the Holy Spirit as our helper in uh, John chapter 14 and as our counselor. The Bible uses the same words to describe women. And we take that word helper, and because it's 2019 and we like to confuse everything, we, we make it as if it's less than. If the Holy Spirit is called our helper, it doesn't mean less than. We worship a triune God, God the Father, God the Son. God the Holy Spirit, all equally triune God, serving our world, uh, deserving of honor and glory and praise. And so when we talk about the household of husbands and wives, there is no inequality. There is no superior gender. There is no dominant race. It's two people working together to accomplish the purposes of God in order. And that puts a, that puts a huge call on husbands, right? You're going to stand before God and give an account for how you led your family. So don't be a buffoon and go on with your own ideas. Listen to your wife, right? She's probably got better ideas than you anyway. So hear me clearly here. Wives are vital to the development and direction of a family, vital. Not just a, uh, an assistant piece off to the side. Vi- like the family can't grow, can't survive in a husband-wife situation unless both are cooperating to make decisions. Therefore, wives, you are not subjected verbal and physical abuse. If anyone's running around with the Bible and slamming it around saying, submit, 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 that fool doesn't understand what he's talking about. Don't listen to that nonsense. That's not what Paul or God is calling us to. Husbands will stand before God to give an account for how they loved and how they led in the home. And so the example for both of us, both husbands and wives, is Jesus Christ. Wives, your example In Jesus is that he became humble, Uh, Philippians chapter 2, submitted himself as a servant to the will of God and did did what was necessary to accomplish salvation. Husbands, your example is also Jesus Christ in that he loved self-sacrificially, gave up the entirety of himself for the betterment of his bride, the church. When two people in a marriage love like Jesus loved and serve like Jesus served, we flourish the way. God intended. There's a lot more we could say, but we've got to talk about children, parents, slaves, and masters somehow in like 15 minutes. So let's keep going. Uh, Point number two, a home led by the Lord exemplifies reverence and reward. So this is the kids and parents section. Verses 20 and 21, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become uh, discouraged. The revolutionary thing that Paul does here is he addresses the children. Again, in household codes, this isn't common. It's, it's usually ordered for the man, the head of the household, how he's going to dominate and have authority over all things. Excuse me. But Paul addresses the children uh, as being dignified members of the congregation. So this assumes that as this letter is being passed to the church in Colossae, that kids are actually present to read it and hear it. Otherwise, why would Paul say, children, obey your parents and everything? He's assuming that they're present in the worship service when this is being read. Dignified members of the church, part of the congregation, holy and beloved, just like everyone else. And so Paul then commands the fathers not to provoke their kids. Again, what would have been common in the ancient household codes would be, children, obey your parents or you're going to get it. The the father was like the judge. They actually had authority to even execute prison sentences and capital punishment for their children. Paul's not saying that here. And so he's not talking about uh, when he says fathers don't provoke, he's not just talking about uh, some kind of sinister manipulation. But actually he says don't do what leads to discouragement in your kids. And I think when we flesh that out a little bit, there's really two, uh, two extremes that we often go to. This applies whether you're a mom, you're a dad, you're a single parent, you're married. If you are the parental authority in the home, this text is for you. It's important that we say that given the changing dynamics of the home. And so generally when we parent children, we make one of two mistakes. It's either over-discipline or under-discipline. And both of those lead to discouragement. And that's what Paul is saying. Do not provoke your children to discouragement. It's a tough balance and no one gets perfect. If we're honest, we all lead, lean to one side or the other. And those of you who are adults and grew up with parents, you you probably know. Your parents leaned to one side or the other. Just trust God. They did the best with what they knew and loved you uh, and, and, and did, did their best. Overdiscipline. This would be when uh, you get your validity out of how well your children are doing whether it be grades, whether it be success in sports, whether it just be uh, you know getting a great job, wanting your child to be the, the valedictorian. And so what ends up happening is when your child doesn't meet those standards, you get tense because you feel like you've done a bad job as a parent. And then you over-discipline, punishing them for things that all normal children go through, trying to get that child to be your God, to be your Savior, to be your source of significance. And obviously we don't want to do that because that's gonna lead to discouragement in your child. The other extreme, and this is probably more common being in the suburbs of South Florida, is underdiscipline. We all want our kids to be our best friend, to love us, think that we're the cool mom or the cool dad. And so what ends up happening is when kids need real correction uh, so that they would worship the Lord and be presentable members in society, we shy away from that. So we don't want them to, to get upset and to not like us and think that we're mean. Both of these are evil, and both of these provoke kids to discouragement. Don't over-discipline trying to make your child into something that they're not. Don't underdiscipline, trying to be your child's best friend. Parent in such a way that brings the entire household under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so at this point, you want to ask yourself, what are the principles that guide the way that I lead my children? Are they principles from, from a book that I read, from A class that I took in college from some guru on TV or on YouTube? Or am I listening to the principles of Jesus Christ where I'm guiding my children in the instruction of the Lord? Treat your kids as the precious treasures of God that they are and lead by humble example and service to Christ. That is the call. Help them pass that legacy on to their kids, magnifying Jesus and all that they do. That's the goal of parenting, right? We want to spread the image of God through our children to the rest of the world in whatever capacity God has gifted them to do that. Lastly, a home led by the Lord, second to last, a home led by the Lord is a place of hard work and humility. So this is the largest section here, verses 22 through chapter 4, verse 1, where we talk about masters and slaves. So I think I'm down to about five minutes now, and I'm going to tell you about slavery in the Bible in five minutes. Uh, The word there translated as bondservants is the Greek word doulos. It literally means slave. Probably wisely in our modern translations, they translate it as bondservant because slave is such a loaded term uh, in in our world, and rightfully so. And so we really need to get to the bottom here of what Paul's talking about because we know our nation's history is ugly in this regard. There are many slave masters through the 17th through 19th century that would take a passage like this and justify it to own human beings and say that this is what God wanted. And I'm sure around the world, as human trafficking continues, there's still people who use the Bible to justify that. On the other side of things, you may have faced people who say, I can't listen to the Bible or follow what it says because it talks about masters and slaves. This book is clearly outdated and ancient and doesn't understand our world. Well, let me shed a little bit more light and hopefully clarify some things for you. It's extremely important for you to note the differences between slavery in the Bible and the American slave trade that we know from the 17th to 19th century. Trust me, I wouldn't be up here preaching this text if it was about the American slave trade. That didn't go well for my people. So uh, number one, the slavery here in the Bible is not racial. That's a main difference. So we know the American slave trade was all racial. It was, hey, you guys are dark. You can work outside. We're going to steal you from your country. We're going to shackle you. We're going to beat you, mistreat you, not feed you, and make you work for free for the duration of your life, possibly even killing you. Slaves in Paul's day were slaves mostly because they had debts to pay, uh, they had committed a crime, or simply they needed consistent work. So it wasn't racially motivated. Whether you were Jew or Gentile, it didn't matter. If you were in that low situation, you might end up a slave. So that's the first difference. Second, many slaves became so voluntarily, which we know isn't true of the American slave trade. So slaves in Paul's day, sometimes someone would be out of work, unable to provide for their family, and know that they can go and become a servant in someone's house, and they could be able to take care of their needs that way, and so they would voluntarily enter into slavery. Third difference, slavery was not lifelong. So if someone committed themselves to that, they weren't shackled for life and sold to another country and boarded a ship and have their family separated. It was for a period of time. Obviously, the periods of time varied, uh, but typically uh, someone who was a slave was never that past the age of 30. And so while it's still not a... Uh, not a good practice, right? Even that kind of slavery is not something that, uh, that we would condone. It, it's helpful to see it more so as an employee and employer relationship in a job market that requires people to commit themselves totally uh, to, to their employer. And so just as Paul did with children and wives, he elevates the dignity of slaves here. Notice and don't miss that he addresses them. So he's expecting that they're present in the worship service, and he, he addresses them directly and says this again, verse 22. Bond servants or slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward you are serving the Lord Christ. And so Jesus uh, or Paul makes it very clear here that they are serving Jesus and that they have dignity and they have worth. Notice that he calls the masters earthly masters. Very, very important that Paul says that. He says, hey, this is your boss now, but you've got a heavenly one who reigns eternally. You're serving him and work heartily toward him. And so how do we apply a text like this today, masters and slaves? Do we just skip over that? Uh, Given that these are household codes, just like we said before, I think the closest relationship is how we approach our modern jobs, any job. And the takeaway here is no matter what you do for a living, your work has meaning and it has significance. It kind of defies our own personal logic to think that Paul would address slaves in the New Testament. You would just think, well, no, no, they just do what their master tells them anyway, so why would he involve them? Well, no, they have dignity, they have worth. And the takeaway is so do you, no matter what your job is. If a first century slave's work is important, you can guarantee that a 21st century person's work is just as important, if not more so. So therefore, Paul says to all of us, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. 16th century theologian Martin Luther had a lot to say about our work. As a matter of fact, he elevated all vocation to the status of holy. Here's what I mean by that. We have a tendency in the church to think of certain jobs as being more holy than others, right? So people will look at a guy like me and say, oh, you planted a church and you pastor it. God must really love everything that you do. And then those of you that, don't, that know me well, you laugh at that. It's very humorous. Where everybody in Christ, uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, makes the point to say that all of those distinctions fall away, that we are one in Christ. And therefore, your work, whatever you do, has dignity. Let me explain it this way. God promises through his word to take care of us, to feed us, to give us what we need to survive in this life. And we know we need food, water, shelter. So if you really break it down to how that works, I don't know about you guys, but I've never walked outside and had food rain from the sky, right? How did I get the food that's in my refrigerator right now? There's farmers. There's bakers. There's butchers, there's distribution centers at Publix, there's those who push the shopping carts, there's those at the cash register. And it's easy for us to think as those uh, those as being menial jobs, but it's the way that God is ministering to all of us. When he says, I will feed you, that means we need a cashier, we need a butcher, we need a cart pusher, we need someone to bag the groceries. We, Lord knows I'm not killing an animal myself I need somebody to do that for me so that I can eat. This is God's work. Whatever it is that you do is the way that God, by his grace, is working in our society and community to take care of our people. You can take any job that you do and see it in that light. See your position as a way that God extends his common goodness to the rest of the world. And so the proper attitude at work is to approach it heartily. You're not working for the boss, whether your boss is good or your boss is a fool. You're working for the Lord. You approach it with dignity. You approach it with humility. You give it your best and your all because you know that this is how Jesus has ordained to serve the world in its entirety. And he has appointed us to do it. The last thing that Paul says here, and we'll close with this thought, verses 2 through 6 of chapter 4, a home led by the Lord is a home of prayer. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful with it, uh, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. So Paul's final charge in this section is for you to continue steadfastly in prayer. When we look at all of these things that he's called us to do, to have a mutually submissive relationship in, in the home where husbands are loving and self sacrificing for their wives, and wives are submitting to that leadership as they submit to the Lord. Children are obeying their parents and trusting their advice, and parents are taking great lengths to not be harsh with their kids and provoke them to discouragement. And when we enter the work sphere, we're we're doing it with all of our might and working heartily to the Lord. Well, how is it that I have the power and the strength to do any of that? It's through prayer. Remember we talked about last week, we're putting on the characteristics of the new creation. And so as a new created person of Jesus Christ, where he has died on the cross, resurrected and sent his Holy Spirit into our hearts, we're now kind of the down payment, the deposit for what's coming later when Jesus returns and resurrects us all, recreating this world into the new heavens and the new earth. And so those characteristics that we need to display that to the world that means we have to lean on our Lord Jesus Christ to empower us to do what He calls, and so that's what we want to. Pr- that's what we want to press on toward. Make our homes homes of prayer, so that we might pursue our Lord Jesus Christ. Let Him govern and guide us in all that we do, and be that reflection and representation to the rest of the world of what our God, what our Jesus, is all about. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that you are Lord of our homes, and I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would give us the conviction to not think so highly of ourselves. We often approach our jobs the way we parent, the way we love spouses, the way we do anything in life, we approach it as if we have all the answers and we can do it on our own, as if we are the Lord of our homes and the Lord of our situations. But I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would convict us, you would give us the humility to understand that you are our Lord and that by following you, that is the way that our homes will be run well. Cause us to pray more, cause us to plead with you and go to you for what we need, and then we ask that as we do that, you would give us the grace and mercy that we desire so that we may be faithful representations of you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.